This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast, Rhode Island's podcast of record. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you. Hope you had a great Memorial Day weekend. Today, we welcome back to B-Town, Congressman Jim Langevin. And great to have the congressman back here on the program. It's been a little while since we've had Congressman Langevin on the show, and we get into everything from local to national to global issues. Lots here for you today. And as always, a pleasure to have you here with us on the podcast out there. Remember, you can email me anytime, Bill at ripodcast.com or tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew. I also just posted the most recent edition of B-Town Insider to our Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash Bartholomewtown, where for as little as $3 per month, you can help to sustain this program. Patreon.com slash Bartholomewtown. Okay, let's get right to it. A big episode here with Congressman Jim Langevin on B-Town. All right, Congressman Langevin, welcome back to the show. Really appreciate it. And here we are. We were just discussing beforehand how Zoom has changed availability and flexibility and so on and so forth. Do you think you'll continue to utilize Zoom even post-pandemic? Absolutely. Uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> you know, made the world a lot smaller and uh, it allows us to be much more accessible. Uh, and uh, you know, no longer do we have to per se, wait for a uh, in-person meeting, especially if it's something of an, of a, an urgent nature or pressing in time that uh, or you want it to be relevant, you know, you can jump on a Zoom as opposed to waiting days for a, for a meeting. Yeah, certainly. So the- I think, I think uh, these types of uh, media platforms are here to stay. Yeah, I agree. Certainly for someone like yourself, you've got a busy schedule back and forth between multiple areas. I mean, it's it's interesting that that we're at this point where all of a sudden you're, you're more accessible in theory, even though there's complaints about, well, the state house is closed or this zoning board meeting is now not in person. There's less interaction. It's kind of a give and take, I guess. Right. You know, there are trade-offs. I mean, in-person is always better and more personable and you can, um, you know, read emotions better in a room, that type of thing. But, um, you know, the upside is, again, as you said, it's you're much more accessible and well, part of my job is to uh, a big part of my job is to interact with my constituents know what's on their minds and and try to be uh, uh you know receptive to and uh you know in, in tune with what they're what they're thinking and feeling and you know this is just a another way to interact with constituents we're always looking for those ways whether it's in-person meetings in the office or going to site visits or uh, going doing town hall meetings or things of that nature. It's, it's, it's very, um, the job has, you have to, has to be very interactive. And this is just now another platform to be able to do that. So get, before we get into the issues, I mean, and this really is an issue, but the census results and the, a lot of people expected Rhode Island to lose a congressperson. That's not going to happen. I mean, this was kind of not discussed that much that there could have been an issue where we would have to go from two to one Congress people here. Number one, I'm sure that's relieving on a certain on a personal level, but then also for the state. I mean that that is that's great news. Well, obviously everyone's thrilled with the outcome that Rhode Island does keep two congressional seats. Um, this is more this is about the people of Rhode Island and the and uh, the, the 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 federal resources that will be able to come to Rhode Island because we got a, a, a full count and accurate count. Uh, and certainly, as we lost a seat, it's uh, is a loss of a vote in Congress, a loss of influence. So Rhode Island gets to keep those two votes. And and as Dave and I continue to rise in seniority, 
uh, you have more more of an ability to uh, influence public policy decisions. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, I think you know David and I would have been fine, irrespective of what uh, you know would have happened. Uh, but the, the the beneficiaries, of course, ultimately uh, the people of Rhode Island that we were able to keep uh, the uh, the two seats, and and again the, the federal dollars that come as a result of getting a full and accurate count. Right. Um, so, so starting with local issues, I mean, it was, I think it was less than two weeks ago now where you were at the Nonviolence Institute with the entire congressional delegation, Governor McKee, Attorney General Narona, uh, Mayor Lorza, Cedric Huntley, the executive director of the Nonviolence Institute. This was in the wake of a significant shooting, the largest in city history um, that, that has sort of become, I, I want to say a talking point, if you will, for some of the bigger issues with um, number of things. One, obviously guns. Number two, just the environmental factors of the urban core, education, after school programs, just things to do, optimism. Your takeaway from that meeting and from just in general, where looking at the state as a whole, even where um, where we can go to improve outcomes and how we can avoid these types of um, of basically combatants going against each other in the streets. Yeah, it was important uh, that we met that day to reaffirm our commitment to our communities in our state, the, the, the people uh, in our state, to committing ourselves uh, to, again, safe neighborhoods. Uh, people want their, their kids and their uh, families to grow up in a safe uh, environment uh, where everyone can thrive. And gun violence uh, is a major threat uh, to that. And so I'm very concerned uh, about um, the, the level of gun violence in our country. Uh, no place, including Rhode Island, is immune to, uh, it seems, uh, the gun violence that, that is taking place on an epidemic level. And we have to double down our efforts to try to get uh, illegal guns off the streets, out of the, uh, the hands of, of criminals or people that are not, uh, that shouldn't have uh, a, access to a firearm. So we're going to double down and work very hard to pass things like universal background checks and closing the uh, uh, Charleston loophole uh, that would allow someone to get a gun if a background check isn't completed within three days. You know, these are common sense gun safety uh, uh, legislation proposals and measures that will make a difference, I believe, in, in keeping guns out of the wrong hands. With with respect to, and it's it's important that you're from the second, represent the second congressional district, you know, Rhode Island's a city state at the end of the day. As the city of Providence goes, so too does goes the rest of the state. And we get this sort of provincial attitude sometimes from people, you know, oh, I live in Westerly, so what happens in Providence doesn't have anything to do with me. What are you hearing from constituents about their concerns? Um, because look, these types of issues and having economic and educational and other challenges for, for people who grow up in this community, that impacts the state as a whole. It does. It does affect the state as a whole. So, uh, you know, whether you're talking about gun violence issues or you're talking about education, uh, you know, we want safe communities and these safe communities everywhere. Uh, first of all, you know, if we want to grow business here in Rhode Island, we want to attract business from out of state, you have to have uh, you know, a holistic, uh, safe, uh, inclusive environment. Um, you know, one of the, the, the first things that any business owner will, will ask, for example, if you think about locating to the state and, and, uh, I remember being on the phone with, um, uh, Governor Armando and a, uh, a, a call I had arranged with a 
uh, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and uh, they were talking about um, you know the possibility of of coming to Rhode Island, and uh, and and one of the first questions was you know what's the education system like uh you know what's the the status of your colleges universities because they need to know are we going to have access to an educated well-trained workforce so all of these things are important now on the uh, certainly on the on the on the gun violence issue i've been proud to lead on that certainly co-sponsoring legislation that's going to keep uh, guns out of the wrong hands like universal background checks and uh, also co-sponsor the, the ending the Charlestown uh, loophole uh, issue, but also legislation that keeps uh, deadbeat gun dealers uh, uh, accountable. Uh, for example, there's a high percentage of of um, uh, guns that are used in crimes that are sold to a very small percentage of of gun dealers. The, so that, that something is something's clearly wrong there. And we've got to crack down on uh, gun dealers that that aren't doing things the right way. Another area I'm again leading on, is, is separate apart from that, is uh, career and technical education. Talk about a educated workforce, trained workforce. Uh, make sure that our young people have the skills to do jobs that are really relevant and will lead to good paying careers. So uh, I co-chair the Career and Technical Education Caucus, and uh, I believe passionately in um, in, uh, in 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 training our workforce, training our young people uh, for these jobs that are that society really needs and that are good paying. Uh, sticking with the second congressional district, it's a district that is, in, in some ways, it, it's arguably uh, turning red to a certain extent. In other words, that there was a lot more support for President Trump than there maybe were previous Republican candidates. What are you hearing from your constituents there as far as just the broad direction that the country's going in? What, what are they, what are they saying? And obviously they, they supported you, they elected you and, 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 and so on and so forth. But are you, are you sensing um, Rhode Islanders in the second congressional district are satisfied with the direction the country's going right now? Well, I certainly hope they're more satisfied now that we have president Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris in the in the White House now, and and leading our country in a direction uh, of healing first of all, but being more inclusive so that everyone can get ahead. Uh, this is something that as a as a Democrat, certainly I care passionately about, and I want to make sure that uh, we can grow policies that will make a that will make a difference. You think about just uh, for example the American Rescue Plan uh, that. Uh, that Congress just passed, uh, led by President Biden and Vice President Harris, uh, to try to uh, achieve the, the dual goals of uh, helping us to crush the virus, get through this pandemic, and keep our economy intact. Uh, vitally, vitally important. So we, we provided uh, more resources, obviously, for uh, vaccines and getting shots in arms. Uh, Rhode Island just passed a, uh, a fantastic milestone that uh, that we have uh, over 70% of our population uh, has at least uh, one vaccine. So on the road to this you know, herd immunity that we need to achieve. Uh, but we also sent out um, individual checks to uh, individuals over, uh, over um, approximately 165 million uh, relief checks, provided direct relief to uh, the American people to put money in their hands so that again, help them to get through this pandemic. 
and especially helping those who have been laid off through no fault of their own because of the pandemic, but also helping uh, small businesses with the PPP loans and also the um, uh, Save Our Restaurants uh, Act. This is a, 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 an effort to, to help those that have been hardest hit and, and keep the, um, uh, the economy strong so that we achieve the dual goal again of crushing the virus and keeping our economy intact so we come out stronger once the uh, public health officials declare this pandemic over. And we're already seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. We are, uh, you know, we are, we're, we're getting life back to normal. We all want our lives back, right? This has been a brutal year. And, uh, you know, we're, we're excited now that we've had, you know, people getting vaccinated and everything is opening back up and hopefully getting life back to normal soon. And I want to touch on your experiences uh, through the pandemic, but one question, the PPP loan, should they be taxed? Should, how should that be handled? I don't think they should be taxed. Uh, first of all, Congress uh, at the federal level, uh, we made it clear that it's not taxable income at the federal level. So uh, I think everyone really, that should be the the the, the model that, that we should follow. If you're planning to get a COVID-19 vaccine, there are three ways to make that happen in Rhode Island. You can choose a state-run vaccination site, a regional or community-based clinic, or certain pharmacy locations. To learn more about all of these options, start at c19vaccineri.org. There, you'll find all the information and links you need to make a decision and to schedule an appointment. That's c19vaccineri.org. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am extremely excited for summer here in Rhode Island, particularly live music and a whole bunch of things, right? But live music right there on the forefront of that. And I've got something for you coming up on June 18th at the venue Dusk on Harris Avenue in Providence, Rhode Island, an outdoor concert featuring yours truly. New songs, new lineup, new normal. I guess that's the catchphrase. Plus some great special guests. Friday, June 18th at Dusk, right off of Route 10, right off of 95 on Harris Avenue in Providence, Rhode Island. We'll see you there. Your experiences during the pandemic, both in terms of professionally and then also personally, what was it like for you navigating this um, in, in terms of your own life and then also obviously being in Congress, navigating this unforeseen or previously unseen challenge that um, you know kind of makes the lunar landing, solving this thing, it kind of makes the lunar landing look like like minorly compared to getting through this. Yeah, and of course, you know, you're 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 balancing the the, the dual uh, issues of uh, protecting your uh, your 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 own health and the public's health, but you know, doing the job and make sure that the people of Rhode Island are represented, uh, and making sure that uh, you know every vote that you know I'm there, and, and making sure that my vote is uh, is cast on behalf of the people of Rhode Island. Um, I, I certainly have. Uh, you know, was concerned on the public health side. Uh, in my own case, certainly, the, the, I'm, I'm in a risk category. So, uh, you know, I, I knew that if I were to uh, get the virus, I probably wouldn't do too well. I have to worry about just getting an average chest cold uh, can turn into uh, bronchitis or a collapsed lung. Uh, I've had that happen a couple times in, in my life, and it's it's uh, a little bit scary. So, um, you know, uh, so I was worried about that, but I also knew I have a responsibility to represent the people of Rhode Island. And I can remember the, the first vote when uh, we were coming back in to pass the, uh, the relief bill that uh, we didn't know if it was going to, we thought it could be perhaps a voice vote and 
Uh, we could do it without necessarily having all the members come back. That was the goal. But there was a there was one member on the Republican side that was threatening to call for a recorded vote, and that may, might result in a, a quorum call. And if we didn't have a quorum, we couldn't pass the bill. Well, it, you know that those that, that was too big a risk uh, for me that 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 we wouldn't get that uh, that relief out to people immediately. Uh, and so I I, uh, I got in my my van at. Uh, about eight or eight thirty at night, drove through the night to Washington, uh, and made sure I was there the next morning at ten a.m. for that quorum call and and the vote. So uh, the bill ultimately passed, thankfully, and and uh, we got those uh, you know the relief uh, to where it needed to be, appropriating money again, both for uh, uh, vaccines and and antivirals, but also uh, getting uh, money out to people to help uh, them to get through the pandemic. Looking at cybersecurity, obviously the Colonial Pipeline is just an example of of what could happen in a number of different sectors. You've been right on top of cybersecurity, and it's as it's an area that we have certainly have a tremendous amount of vulnerabilities, and it, it impacts our economy, it impacts our defense, um, just overall health as a as a nation state. What what did you learn from that, and where do we go from here in terms of updating our cybersecurity infrastructure? Yeah, yeah. So cybersecurity is the national security challenge of our time. It is the top national security threat by most national security experts would would agree. Uh, we're not where uh, we need to be yet, but getting better at it. So you know, I started on this issue more than a decade ago when I was chairing a subcommittee on the Homeland Security Committee that a jurisdiction over cyber, and I was uh, given a briefing that showed how uh, you could carry out a cyber attack uh, on critical infrastructure. And I, I watched as it uh, basically they caused a generator to blow itself up by inserting some malware in the, the generator's logic code. And so it was a real wake-up call to understand how physical damage can be done through a cyber attack. Uh, what was more disturbing that is I started holding briefings and hearings to see how secure we really were, asking the owners and operators of, of the electric grid, for example, how secure we are. And I was appalled and, and, and really uh, disheartened by how unprepared the private sector was for this, thinking they were saying they were doing enough, but really not doing enough. So that became a, kind of a a um, now a lifelong mission that seems to uh, uh, for over the more than a decade now of trying to improve our nation's cybersecurity. We've come a long way, but as we just saw uh, with the Colonial Pipeline uh, attack uh, through this ransomware attack, uh, we're still not out of the woods. There's still we're still uh, glaring vulnerabilities that we need to uh, we need to double down on and, and we need to uh, address so that we can protect uh, both our critical infrastructure and the American people. Yeah, it's such a challenge when you can't physically see the threat unless you're inside of you know coding and so on and so forth it's it's an awesome challenge to say the least and the the congress recognized that it was a challenge and a couple of years ago uh passed a uh and created a what's called the cyberspace solarium commission it's a national commission passed in the national defense authorization act uh that created a 14-member commission uh, with four members of Congress on it, and then uh, cyber experts from in and out of government, including the uh, then uh, the at the time Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, the Director of the FBI, 
uh, representatives from the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the uh, Director of National Intelligence uh, Office. And we uh, met for uh, approximately a year. And our, our charge was to protect the to create a strategy that would protect the United States from cyber attacks of significant consequence. Uh, we issued a report at the end of that, uh, that, that uh, year or so that had 80 recommendations. We turned those 80 recommendations into 55 legislative proposals, and we were able to get 27 of them into the uh, National Defense Authorization Act and enacted into law, including creating a national cyber director and uh, that a Senate confirmed, uh, and also uh, giving more authority to CISA, the Cybersecurity and, and Infrastructure Security Agency at, at, CISA, at uh, DHS, which is responsible for protecting the .gov network, but also being the primary contact for private sector critical infrastructure, and uh, and allow CISA to do, give more authorities to do things like threat hunting on other government networks, that which they did not have that authority before. So we're getting better at it, but we've got a long way to go. Last question right now, global challenges, the global South, what's happening with, with COVID-19 in Brazil and in India and in West Asia, what's happening with Palestine and Israel, um, China. Um, there are so many global challenges. How do you navigate those and, and, and how do we get to a point where we can have some version of a peaceful resolution to all of those areas? Is it, is it intellectual property rights sharing to resolve COVID? How do we broker a deal in the, in, um, in between Israel and Palestine at this point that's sustainable and with respect to other potential threats, how do we deal with this? Yeah, there are no shortages of, of, of challenges and difficulties and threats in the uh, international front uh, as there are here, you know, uh, here in the, within the United States. Uh, but uh, we get through these best by working collaboratively in partnership with our partners and allies around the world on the international front. So mutual cooperation and aid and assistance wherever possible uh, so that we get through the pandemic together. Um, I know the United States is uh, trying to do a lot to get uh, resources to uh, India, both vaccines and supplies. So um uh, again, we need to work in, in collaboration to protect all of us. Uh, with respect to the conflict in Israel and uh, with the, the, the Israel, the Palestinians, uh, it, it's really a tragic situation. Uh, I believe in Israel's right to defend itself, though, and and uh, and they did. Um, uh, at the same time, there's you know loss of life on both sides, which is which is tragic. So I'm, I'm glad that there's a ceasefire that appears to be holding. Uh, let's hope that is the case. But you know, in the long-term solution here is going to be a two-state so solution where the Israelis and the Palestinians can live side by side in peace, a Jewish state of Israel, an independent Jewish state of Israel, and also a Palestinian state for the state for the Palestinian people. So that should be everyone's goal. We need to continue to work toward that direction. Um, the, the challenge is, the problem is that Hamas is a a terrorist organization, and they are uh, are committed to the destruction of Israel. And if, if they uh, are going to be, you know, the the main obstacle to the problem, then somehow they've got to be sidelined. And and we need to pursue diplomatic efforts on on, on other fronts. Unless you know Hamas is going to come to the table and negotiate in good faith. But if they're committed to the destruction of Israel, and and there is zero chance that they want to see. Uh, a peaceful resolution. How do you negotiate with with an entity like that? Are you concerned Israel is committed to 
uh, or, or do you believe Israel would be open to a two-state solution right now that it doesn't have sort of a, a reciprocal um, philosophy when it comes to the Palestinians? Well, I know that Israel has gone to great lengths over the years to uh, to to reach out for peace, to try to achieve peace. Uh, it, unfortunately, it hasn't gone uh, as far as anyone at, at, at hope in terms of meaningful results. Uh, but I know Israel continues to try. I'd like to see the same type of commitment on behalf of the of the Palestinians. Um, uh, again, Hamas is a problem, uh, and uh, they. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a way to bring them to the table to 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 renegotiate in earnest. But it's sadly it's the Palestinian people that are that are paying the price for inaction and you know uh, the the intransigence of Hamas. So. Uh, I'm hoping that the international community and the the friendly nations, uh, nations in the region, uh, other Arab nations can um, can be a part of the the equation of of hopefully bring the Palestinians to the table with the, uh, the state of Israel and and working out a long term peace agreement. And the United States clearly can can play a, a facilitating role. At the end of the day, though, it's got to be the two parties themselves that come up with a uh, the 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 long term resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I've always believed that peace is possible when when people truly want it. Congressman Langeman, as always, thanks so much for your time and a pleasure. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town.